CRS had a report in 2020, uh, where if someone born in India was applying for a green card in the EB2 category, which is uh, employment-based second preference category, then they would have to wait 195 years before they would get a green card. They projected that that number would grow to about, I believe, 436 years in 2030. What do we talk about when we talk about tech policy? What are weird corners of the chips and science bill? How is talent policy broken and what can anyone do about it? And broadly, if you want to change the world through better regulatory and executive action, how do you go about this? To discuss all the following and more, we have on today Divyanj Kaushik, a sixth-year PhD candidate studying machine learning at Carnegie Mellon. He is also a science and technology fellow at the Federation for American Scientists, focusing on emerging tech policy and was closely involved with the Chips and Science Bill negotiations. Divyanj, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. So what do we talk about when we talk about tech policy? When you look at how people talk about tech policy now, especially with the the key phrase that Brian Deese came up with, uh, the modern industrial strategy, uh, we leave out how to make it successful. We are talking a lot about, okay, how much money on what, where, when, but how are we making sure we're getting the most bang for the buck? Uh, that is clearly something that we should be paying a lot more attention to. Uh, otherwise, what we end up with is like billion-dollar boondoggles with nothing to show for. So uh, Chips and Science Act, especially, in, uh, is, is one area where we need to talk about how to make it successful. Congress has done some really good things around creating a STEM workforce for the future, 100% behind that amazing effort that they've put in, they actively consulted everybody that they could. And that was quite quite amazing. Like uh, I did not expect that there would be, you know, emails coming from staffers that, hey, we want to talk to grad students who are doing research on the ground. Uh, so if you are going to send all this money out, we want to know how to make it most effective. And that's great. At the same time, a lot of that uh, in the Chips and Science Bill is authorization, right? Uh, the only appropriations are for the chip subsidies and the $250 million for semiconductor workforce development. Plus, there are a few other uh, appropriations as well. Oh, yeah. And yet, at the same time, you have Congress trying to increase the graduate research fellowship program from 2,000 to 3,000 fellowships a year, which is amazing. It's the flagship fellowship of the National Science Foundation. It's very competitive, has produced a lot of Nobel laureates, secretaries of energy. It's amazing. Yet, if we are not able to get to those 3,000 fellowships just because Congress does not appropriate the money or you know, NSF ends up in implementation barriers, they don't have the people to staff it or whatnot, then it'll be very hard to achieve those goals that Congress was trying to achieve through this authorization bill. Let's let's start by talking in general about the politics around talent policy. I don't know how far back you want to go, but maybe maybe we can bound it with just uh, high-skilled immigration. What, what are the sort of uh, different competing factors and arguments and, and where are the kind of battle lines drawn on, uh, on, on this topic in particular? 
Right. So I guess you, you have to go back to the 1990s for that. Uh, Congress decided where we're going to set aside 140,000 green cards each year for employment-based categories. And now that includes spouses and dependents. So about half of those are going to spouses and dependents. Only about 70,000 go to principals. Now, the economy has tripled since then. That number has not gone up. How does that affect us? Well, the backlogs for people born in India or China have grown, they've grown decades long. I believe uh, CRS had a report in 2020 uh, where if someone born in India was applying for a green card in the EB2 category, which is uh, employment-based second preference category, then they would have to wait 195 years before they would get a green card. That was the CRS's estimate in 2020. They projected that that number would grow to about, I believe, 436 years in 2030. Now, not that any of that matters. Nobody's living 195 years, let alone 436. For China, the numbers were slightly lower, but they were still just like decades-long backlogs uh, because we have grown the economy. We need this workforce. We do not have the population to meet the needs of the economy. And yet, for some reason, we do not, like, we love the benefits this workforce is creating for the economy overall. But for some reason, we do not want to provide them a predictable path to, like, to residents, to just, like, assimilating in our communities as citizens eventually. And that's creating a lot of problems. Uh, fast forward, like, from 1990s to on the political side, like, if you look at there have been two major uh, attempts to pass like a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Uh, there was one in 2007, uh, which failed in the Senate. Uh, there was a Senate compromise in 2013, which passed with a huge bipartisan uh, majority. But uh, the House Freedom Caucus made sure that Speaker Boehner never brought it up for a vote in the House. They had the votes to pass it in the House. Uh, the bill would have exempted STEM PhD holders from annual caps. Like, why do we even have these caps for? If you're saying someone is exceptional ability, that is quite literally what they call the EB1 criteria, like uh, your extraordinary ability uh, individual. Uh, so, well, okay, if you're an extraordinary ability uh, you know, individual in the e applying for an EB1A category, then why should you be subject to those 140,000 caps? Well, we should be inviting all of you in. That's quite literally what Canada does. That's what UK does. Canada, you know, New Zealand, Australia, Israel. What are we doing here? Uh, so they, they tried to fix that in 2013. Didn't go anywhere. Since then, uh, we've had a lot of education polarization. Uh, and immigration has become a very hot topic. Uh, when people... Now, when people talk about immigration, uh, the first visual that comes to anybody's mind is, uh, you know, chaos on the southern border rather than uh, someone, an engineer or a doctor in their community who's, uh, you know, looking at improve, but who's, who's providing jobs, who's uh, doing so much good for the community. Even refugees and asylum seekers, they, they have so much net fiscal benefit to the United States. Uh, and yet, when you talk about, uh, you know, the refugee uh, refugee population or the asylum process, 
people generally have negative connotations to that. Let's talk about some sort of reform efforts, um, particularly on the high-skilled immigration side that um, have been floated in, in, in recent years. And, you know, what have been their fates and why? People have looked at a lot of ways in which Congress could make some attempt at, you know, some fixes on immigration. And it seems that doing something on high-skilled immigration would be uh, the easiest, but uh, at the same time, it's super hard in these times. Uh, some of the ideas that people have looked at, like there was a bill in last Congress, a bipartisan bill by Senator Moran, Senator Blunt uh, of Missouri. Uh, so Senator Moran of Kansas, Senator Blunt of Missouri, Senator Warner from Virginia, and Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota. It's called the Startup Act. I believe uh, the number was three to eight in last Congress. What they were basically doing is like providing conditional permanent residence. So that's conditional green card to 50,000 STEM degree holders, advanced STEM degree holders from U.S. universities as long as they stay engaged in STEM fields post-graduation. Uh, and at the same time, they were also establishing a startup visa so the United States is actually one of the very few countries that does not have a startup visa. If you want to create a startup in the U.S., tough luck. Uh, you know, there's there are very very few ways to do it, and they're extremely hard to get through. So that was one of the bills uh, that gained some traction. Uh, Senators Moran and Blunt have been trying ever since, but uh, seems to go nowhere. Uh, there were more recently. You know, in the Build Back Better last year, there were two provisions uh, allowing anyone to adjust their status early. So early adjustment of status or early filing uh, was one thing. Actually, yeah, early filing. Uh, it was called early filing. And that would have cleared the backlog for some people uh, in the employment-based category, uh, in the family-based categories to to basically say that you're not getting a green card as such, but like we're going to provide you the flexibility to switch employers, start your own thing. We're going to provide you a lot of the green card benefits without giving you a green card just yet. That was in the Build Back Better. There was another thing, you know, USCIS inefficiencies, it brings us back to like the inefficiencies in the federal government. Uh, because of bureaucratic red tape and inefficiencies in USCIS and at the State Department, the federal government wastes like tens of thousands of green cards every year. I, I found that shocking. Um, and, and then you've seen, you also seen the Biden administration. They say, oh, we're going to bring in like 100,000 refugees and they only get to 20,000. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> how does that happen? So uh, I think over the last four years, well, since 2016, 2016 to 2020, there was a systematic effort to hollow out the agency. Uh, people were not hired. You know, in fact, career officials were quitting because of the pressure, the political pressures. So the agency was just not, USCIS in particular did not have the staffing that it needed to process those applications. Uh, over the last two years, USCIS has been on a hiring spree. They've been building back the administrative state. Uh, and for the first time this year, uh, you know, they, this year, they had 
280,000 green card applications that they processed uh, in the employment-based category. So while they have 140 cap on employment-based, 140 cap on family-based, you know, every family unused family-based green card rolls over into the employment-based category for next year. And every unused employment-based category green card just incinerates. It vanishes. Uh, it no longer exists. Uh, it does not roll over. So if U.S. since last year, State Department was more or less close to family-based green card applicants, and most of those applicants are outside the U.S., right? So we did not use the family-based green card numbers, and all of those rolled over into employment-based categories for this year. And this year, USCIS used all 280,000. Major props to USCIS for doing that. Last year, they wasted about 40,000 of the employment-based green cards that we will never be able to recover. Now, there are proposals in Congress to fix this problem. In the appropriations bill this year, the House passed appropriations bill has uh, a measure that would recapture all the unused green cards from previous years and fix this problem of incineration. Uh, while at the same time keeping family-based and employment-based green cards on two separate tracks. And, and that's important. That's uh, critical. Uh, there are other provisions that Congress has been looking at. Uh, in the America Competes Act, the House passed version of USICA, they had a provision to exempt any advanced STEM degree holder from U.S. universities or international universities. Uh, well, the, there was a qualifier uh, that if you are from a non-U.S. university, your university has to be spending at least $25 million for the last three years on R&D. And that's the only reason, that's only how you would qualify. Because, well, while we want all the Carnegie Mellon and MIT grads to stay, we also don't want to miss out on any Oxford or Cambridge grads who want to come here. So uh, that was provision that passed uh, the House there was some movement. A lot of national security leaders came out. You know, President Trump's deputy secretary of defense, David Norquist, uh, former chair of House Armed Services Committee, Mac Thornberry, uh, and 47 other people, they wrote to the Senate and House leadership that that needs to stay in the final bill. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't make through due to Senator Grassley's objection, and he got a veto power being the ranking member on Senate Judiciary Committee. Then the House tried again with that proposal, uh, restricting it to people working in critical industries for national defense. Uh, and that is how we arrived at the CBO problem, because that was being filed as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act. There were three Republicans who were co-sponsoring it, uh, Representative Curtis, uh, Salazar and Meyer. And now CBO was like, well, this this is going to create a billion dollars in deficit over the next 10 years. So to offset that, we created a $7,500 fee on every person. Uh, then Ways and Means basically objected, saying that the fee was actually a tax because it would cover Obamacare uh, subsidies that these people would use for the CBO and so if there are Obamacare subsidies, uh, then it has to be a tax. It's not a fee. Yeah. And, and scenario, it did not make it into the House NDAA. It was ruled out of order. Now, the Senate has take, taken another stab at it. Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, Republican of South Dakota, and Senator Dick Durbin 
uh, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, they proposed a similar amendment, just uh, the changes are that it's you have to be educated at a U.S. university. Uh, you could have a master's degree, a PhD degree, uh, and you have to pass a labor wage certification test. Uh, basically, federal government's way of saying you're not cheap labor. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where that goes, but it's interesting movement. So you have a PhD to do, but even that said, you apparently have enough time to get deeply involved in these sorts of discussions and negotiations. How does that work? How does someone who doesn't have a, you know, a title as a, you know, legislative correspondent or a chief of staff to someone in the legislative branch end up um, being able to have these sorts of um, have these sorts of conversations? Yeah, so I guess I had trial by fire. Uh, when I first came to my PhD program, there was a there was the GOP tax plan in 2017, and one interesting bit of that tax plan was that they were going to start taxing graduate student tuition waivers. So, uh, you know, if you are a PhD student, you get maybe $30,000 in stipend, the university waives off your tuition fee. So the tax plan was saying, okay, even though you get $30,000, we're going to tax you at $80,000. That passed the House. We were fighting it in the Senate. Uh, It was a tough fight. But that helped me build some of these relationships that I still I'm in touch uh, like people I'm still in touch with uh then we had a lot of things happening in 2020 uh the administration tra- tried to end the OPD program uh where we had to get a lot of republican support to preserve it the OPD program being the optional practical training program which allows foreign graduates to work for a year post graduation 3 years if they are graduating from a STEM degree Uh, They tried to deport all international students who would not take classes in person. Uh, This was a directive from the Immigration uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, uh, and and the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, So we band together. uh, My my other job basically is is as uh, president of CMU's Graduate Student Assembly. So we band together in that year with a lot of other student governments uh, to file an amicus brief in the lawsuit that MIT and Harvard brought against ICE. Uh, that lawsuit was settled, but we were the only students who were talking about it at the time. Uh, we, I helped the House Science Committee organize a hearing that, the same year on the impact of COVID-19 on university research. So like a lot of these things have come together because of my work with CMU's Graduate Student Assembly. And I think... Uh, a lot of other students, if they started getting involved with their uh, student governments, would, would find similar opportunities come their way. Why do why are outside voices useful to Congress? Yeah. So when I first met the House Judiciary Committee staff, for instance, they told me they it was the first time they had heard uh, from student governments. You know, when we met Ways and Means staff on the tax fight, they were like, this is the first time we've met someone from a student government. This is the first time we met a student. Uh, and I think people undervalue the level of insight you are able to provide, uh, especially if something impacts you directly. There might be things that, you know, members of 
Congress or their staff are not aware of uh, that impact you. Uh, policies they might be proposing might impact you in very weird ways. And they need to hear. Uh, they love to hear those voices. They love to hear anyone who uh, has an interesting perspective on something they're trying to do or something they're trying to stop. Uh, and they try to get as much information as possible. It is hard for them. Uh, they're drinking from a fire hose. Uh, so making sure that if you have something important, valuable, you know, interesting to say that you, you say it. And, and how does one say it? Like literally call your congressman and start from there? Like what's the, what's the process? One thing I found very interesting is that they all read your local newspapers. Uh, you know, if I'm a representative from Pittsburgh, I'm always reading Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Uh, and so we should start off. That is how I started off. Uh, like just just write uh, about your experiences in your local paper. Uh, they would be happy to publish uh, and your member would get to read it. And then, yes, uh, call them, write to them, try and get a meeting with the staffer you want uh, on an, on the issue you're most passionate about. Uh, you, not just like, you know, uh, a lot of people are passionate about a lot of things, but they're not necessarily uh, the experts on those things. So don't don't try to waste their time. But like, if you have something interesting, definitely schedule that meeting. Uh, they'll be happy to share their, you know, contact information over the phone, or you could like try and set up a meeting by emailing the office. It's it's pretty easy. So this is so this is what I've done, and just to make it even more concrete, like if there is a bill you are interested in, go to the website, you know, figure out who sponsored it, look up that office's phone number and say, hi, this is what I do. I say, hi, I'm Jordan Schneider. I'm a fellow at CNAS, a think tank. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about this bill that you're writing. And inevitably, the person picks, who picks up the phone will say, great, cool. The staffer da, 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 is working on it. Let me give you their contact information. And then you send them an email and they talk to you. And I think it's really important to know for everyone out there listening that you don't need a think tank affiliation to do this. Um, as long as you have some sort of reason uh, that you can say you have something interesting to say about it. And, you know, in your case, it was, I'm a student. This thing is going to affect me. Um, it could be, I've written a paper on this. I've researched the topic, uh, whatever it is. Um, these staffers, they don't get a lot of calls like that, I think, particularly when it's not on. Yeah. It, it, especially when you are not a lobbyist, right? And it's not like you want something out of right. them. Like the the sort of the sort of like public service input that um, folks can that that folks receive in Congress that isn't like you know it's not disinterested, right? Like I care about these issues. You didn't want your tax your taxes to go up, but it's very different. You know, a PhD student being like, guys, I make thirty thousand dollars a year. Please don't turn that into fifteen. Um, as opposed to, you know, an oil lobbyist saying like, hey, can can I like write off my investment in a, you know, shale field or something? Yeah. And, and, and so I think I think people under appreciate the response that you can get as long as you, you know, have done a bit of homework and have something to say. And I think, you know, what um, what I found like surprisingly empowering is often, um, you know, these folks will ask you questions 
And, you know, you might not mm -hmm. have the answer, but they are not going to have the time to research the question. So if you can answer their questions by just doing legwork, you don't have to be brilliant. You just have to, you know, call people or read some stuff. And then you come back to them a few weeks later and say, hey, you know, that thing you were interested in, um, I looked into it and here's what I found. Like, you've got a friend for life because you're taking stuff off of their plate and making them smarter at their jobs. Uh, and I think that, uh, especially when it's something that, you know, you're interested anyways, and you would be doing, um, is a, it can be an incredibly sort of empowering experience. And like, whenever I've done that, it actually makes me really thankful that I live in a democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, not in uh, a system like China's where this sort of thing would not happen. So anyways, um, give it a shot. Once you do that it's entirely possible that the staff will reach out to you the next time they are looking at something of, you know, that's even tangentially related. They might, they'll be like, oh, you know what? I had this meeting with this person once. Maybe they have something interesting to say on this. Yeah. And I think the other thing is you don't, you don't also need to be the student president, you know, uh, of your, of your graduate student union. You don't have to be a fifth year, you know, computer science PhD. You can literally be a really smart undergrad. Um, and, uh, as long as you, as long as you do homework and put time into it, this would be the thing. And actually the only teach, the only class I would want to teach in a, a graduate school would act, would be doing this. Cause I think, I think this is the part of, of sort of like, you know, MAs in public policy or whatever that is just done incredibly poorly. Like you have these like capstone things where like someone asks you something and you talk to them six months later. It's like, no, look at the bills that are moving and see if there's some little corner of it, which you think hasn't been entirely thought out or, you know, just interests you and read about it because I, I can I can be almost certain that as long as you start small enough, if you put in 30 hours of work, you will be at or even potentially past the knowledge frontier of whoever was writing that piece of legislation. And that as like a as like a civic American or not even an American. I mean, to be honest, you're you're here on a student visa, right? It does not take a I it does am. not take citizenship to 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 be involved in this process. Um, but if you do, it's just like your whole sense of, you know, the possibility space of what you can accomplish as a private citizen expands in a really like beautiful and empowering way. All, I think the bare minimum I've I've seen anyone contact a rep with like the the look. You know, Lewis Barr of a reason. I live in your district. You got to listen to me on this. That's it. And, 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 okay. And then, but like, it's one thing to be put in the, but, but you, you don't want to be put in the, I'm the crank calling about my, you know, heating bill, right? That, that is enough to get you, that is literally enough to get you a meeting is I am a, I am, you know, I'm a voter or whatever. And then from there, as long as you sort of are smart and respectful and responsible and are additive, um, the sky's the limit. Um, talk a little bit about the day one, the day one project. What have they? What have? How have you engaged with them? And and sort of what 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 type of work do they do? Yeah. Uh, so the day one project at the Federation of American Scientists uh, is basically a way for 
subject matter experts to talk to policymakers. Uh, if you have an interesting idea to address uh, a challenge that you see and you think that there's an opportunity to address it, then come out with your plan of action uh, and, and write a day one policy memo that then you'll work with the day one team to you know, find the appropriate people in the federal government who would who would take it to action. Uh, it's quite interesting. The way I engaged with it uh, was before I got affiliated with them. I started a, uh, I joined a policy accelerator, which Jordan was also in. Uh, it was the Progress Studies Accelerator. Uh, Jordan, we still don't have your memo, uh, but... <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I'm writing you a new one. Uh, we'll talk about it later in the show. Yeah, so if if you are, say for instance, okay, I'll, I'll talk about my example. I had this interesting idea that the National Institutes of Health provides a lot of money to training grants, uh, which are very successful. And the way training grants work is like a department gets those grants and then our university gets those grants. Then they get to hire students who work on those grants. So the students are not tied to a particular faculty in their research. Whereas fellowships that NSF emphasizes a lot on you know, you give money to faculty and then you're tied to individual faculty. So the idea was, well, why not replicate the success of NIH's training grants to other agencies? Uh, you could add other things that NIH does, like having individual development plans uh, for every grad student to, uh, you know, every NSF training grant as well, uh, if you are to establish that. And in fact, that did make it into Chips and Science Act now, every NSF grant that goes out, uh, you know, every PhD student who's funded on an NSF grant will have to work with their advisor on creating a one-page individual development plan, uh, which, is quite int- which is quite amazing because that's, that's been shown to be very effective in uh, you know, improving the quality of mentorship that these students get. And that, is, that goes to the point we were discussing earlier of like making sure that we have the talent uh, to put these dollars to good use. Uh, what's a PhD student of use if they're not getting the right mentorship to be successful in their career, to be successful in their research area. So that is how I engaged with the day one project. They were very interested in that idea. They helped me write it into a two-page policy document uh, that we then pitched to the people we thought would be the customers uh, in the policy domain uh, in the federal uh, government and the executive branch as well as the legislative. And that uh, it, it made it in, which is amazing. Uh, and I'm sure that if you, if anybody out there listening has amazing policy ideas that are, you know, you may not think that they're amazing. You may think that they're just common sense, uh, but you don't know what the, the staffers will think. They might just think that they're, oh my God, why did I never think of this? Yeah. This guy's amazing. This is an amazing idea. We could just like drop one line of text in an appropriations bill, an uncontroversial line, and it will dramatically change the whole landscape. Come out, uh, submit your idea through the day one project website. Um so, so this this idea of these these sort of marginal, nominally bipartisan changes. I, I think generally when people think about political change and uh, they, they think about, you know, marches and mass movements and sort of like enormous bills. And there are those. And those are incredibly important. 
I think there's also, you know, the, 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 what I've learned over the past, you know, few years of working with Day One Project and engaging, you know, in a personal capacity with the legislative process is that it's not all that. And as an individual, like, you can have a higher degree of confidence that you will impact at least a little bit of change in the world if you at least start with these, you know, one line here, you know, one clause there, one paragraph, uh, one paragraph of text here. And, and, and by doing that, um, and I think this is what you've shown in, in, in your work over the past few years, is like th that sort of stuff is the training wheels to understand how big change happens. Um, because, yes, you know, mass movements and, poll and, and sort of national polling numbers and you know, public opinion matters. Um, but there are plenty of things that uh, that this system needs changed that hasn't been changed just because no one's no one's staring at it and no one's using their their voice in a kind of smart, active and um, uh, and 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 persuasive way. Yeah, absolutely. Like there are so many things, and the I think the name itself reflects it. Like you know, policies that our administration can but enact in day one. Like, you know, what could you day what could you do? Like how can what are the small things, what are the big things that, that an administration could do on day one? Oh and that there are a lot of those things out there. Quite amazing how you know people have all these ideas that they bring to the day one project and then we, we get to be amazed at everything. Yeah, we also get a lot of other submissions. Like recently, we got a submission: we should install a massive fire sprinkler to combat wildfires. Uh, and so, <laughs> like, which was okay. I get it. Uh, you know, uh, but we we do get, like there are amazing ideas that come through that process that I'm truly amazed at. Like, I'm just like, oh my god, why did I never think of this before? Uh, and so it's the. Even on the, like, it's, while it's, like, we, we tell people, okay, yes, think about what the executive branch could do. Think about the levers that they have to pull. Because, obviously, yes, uh, there is some truth to uh, saying that Congress, the default is in action. Uh, that is, you know, it has, it is true for, there's a good reason why, why people say that. But at the same time, there are also a lot of things in Congress that are extremely low bar. Uh if you know a member, uh, you know, you've got, who, who sits on the right committee, say, on appropriations or uh, defense, and you could just, like, get them to slip one line on a report, that will start a lot of things moving. Like, okay, maybe you want to change how the State Department processes visas, or maybe you want to change, you know, how DOE collects some data or something, or how the uh, education department works on some particular area. It costs nothing to, well, to get like a line. Okay, you know, GAO will study so-and-so-and-so or we'll establish a commission to study so-and-so-and-so. And that gets the ball rolling because when those com uh, those reports come out, they make a massive impact on the policymakers. They one of my favorite ones was uh, when GAO came out with this report that, you know, most students do not know about 
uh, snap benefits that they can get. Uh, and all that needs to happen is the Department of Education needs to better publicize them. The Department of Education was like, great, we'll start better publicizing them. Yeah, and people who were talking to the Department of Education before that report, like, please, can you publicize it better? They were getting nowhere. So you, if you get like those small things happening, it's like dynamos, right? You, you move one thing and then suddenly there's a big uh, thump on the ground and you get the, uh, the desired results. Yeah. Um, and I think it's uh, these sorts of like tips and tricks uh, are not transparent and are things that you learn over time. And uh, organizations like the Day One Project exist uh, in, in order to sort of hold your hand from, oh, here's a thing to, okay, how can we, you know, make this, uh, make this, make this a reality. I'd be very curious, you know, this is a very American focused show we've had over the past 45 minutes. Um, if there are other organizations out there on the planet, um, who do this sort of thing, uh, I'd be very curious in how, how sort of like policy change happens in other countries. Um, that'd be an interesting, you know, follow up show or two i would love to know that too it'd be really uh it'd be really interesting yeah what do you think yeah what's the indian yeah. version of this does it would it would it not exist i have no idea i i think like well I, i'd get into trouble if i say something they i i don't want to get arrested the next time i land at the airport oh no well that's that's a problem worrying about that makes this a hard thing to start about. yes um uh, it's it's very interesting like oh uh, you know people going to jail over Google Docs that they've created or a social media post that they've made. So, uh, but I think uh, there are some members of parliament who who do make, who do propose like uh, bills on their own. But normally in a parliamentary democracy, I believe it's, you know, the cabinet makes a decision of what they're going to do. The party lines up behind them uh, and things happen. Uh, I think it's it's a very American uh, way of doing things where individual members make their play, they recruit others to co-sponsor and then anything could happen. Yeah. That's, that's a good, that's a good point. Actually. It, uh, it's, it's a really interesting point. I mean, uh, Sam Hammond of the Niskanen center recently had a blog post talking about, um, you know, why American think tanks have an outside influence on the process. And the point he made was that parties uh, in parliamentary systems have their own, like like internalize the function of think tanks within the parties themselves. Um, but I think it, it, because of this sort of reliance on think tanks and academia as the, um, to generate the ideas, it also opens the aperture for something like the day one project where it's just, you know, concerned citizens, um, to, uh, to, to play the same role that like, you know, someone at Brookings or CSIS would, um, uh, because the system itself is used to having like random people just like come up with things and pitch them and then get adopted and, and, you know, fed into the, into the legislative or executive bloodstream. Yeah. I mean, policy entrepreneurship, right? We want to be a, we want everybody to be a policy entrepreneur oh the thing i didn't want to leave hanging so so i didn't want to leave you guys hanging on my uh on my uh uh on my on my new uh, a preview of my new day one uh memo um let me pull up the uh hey you're you're still writing it 
You know, we haven't guaranteed that we'll accept it. Okay. All right. So well, let's talk through. Let's talk through my idea real fast, just to give folks a taste of how the uh, how the sausage gets made. Um, challenge and opportunity. So I think America does a pretty piss poor job of uh, econ plus tech analysis to serve both economic and uh, national security decision-making. So there's, um, there's, there are organizations like the Office of Net Assessment that do um, that look at these types of questions, but strictly from a military perspective or, or strictly from a sort of like Pentagon perspective, there are organizations like, uh, you know, the intelligence community looks at foreign capacities, but isn't really allowed by statute to do comparative analysis of like, okay, the U.S., you know, China is doing good at this, but like U.S. is also doing better or not doing as good. Um, their sort of analytical lens doesn't look um, domestically. And uh, more than ever now, we are starting to engage in major um, uh, decisions which are going to shape our sort of technological and by extension economic um, and societal futures, which could be served by injecting stronger analysis and expertise about, uh, about established and um, in particular emerging technologies. So my plan of action uh, is, as section two of the day one memo goes, would be to um, set up some sort of research body potentially um, connected uh, or adjacent to the objective, objective branch, potentially something with, with inside the Department of Commerce, maybe uh, a kind of wing or a special funding uh, line uh, for an FFRDC, like a, like a RAND or uh, an IDA or STIPI uh, that, that, tries to does, that tries to do this sort of you know, net tech assessment or uh, global tech competitive analysis um, that looks at um, where the U.S. Uh, that looks at first, um, you know, what are the industries that uh, and 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 technical specializations which are going to be most important? How is the U.S. and its allies doing in them relative to um, uh, to adversary nations? What uh, and what would be important uh, potential? Um, Interventions that the U.S. government could pursue to um, to help uh, improve uh, U.S. competitiveness. Yeah, how'd I do? What more? What, what else do I? What, what else do I need to do to to, to um, start? Uh, how much more work do I need to do to start talking to uh, congressional staffers? So, the, the the question is: Is there an existing opportunity where one the uh, the executive branch could do this without congressional? action mm. does that exist uh you know if there is a way to do that then i think that's the easiest way to go right if not well if you are going to talk to congressional staff what is the you know how do you see them doing it you have to like lay it on their plate right you have to give it to them on a silver platter that hey i've hashed it all out it's gonna likely gonna cost this much uh it's within this jurisdiction. Uh, you, it can write on this large bill, you know, one of the four bills that are going to pass next year or something like that. Uh, and this is how you should structure it. You know, who should, uh, if you're creating a, a research body that, that uh, you know, that Congress could uh, provide oversight on, they love that. Uh, that's another thing to think of. Uh, or is there an existing body 
that is there just hasn't had any appropriations for, like the Office of Tech Assessment in Congress. Uh, could you just be like, hey, could you just put money towards that? So what are the menu of options there? Uh, what and how would each option work? What are the pros and cons of each option? Uh, what are the questions you anticipate someone to ask if you were to go pitch it to them? Uh, what what challenges they might face? What are the potential success scenarios, failure scenarios? What's the best case outcome, worst case outcome? Uh, so what are those FAQs in this uh, in this memo? I think those are questions that you have to think about because uh, we love to give them a good pudding. We, we don't want it, uh, you know, just halfway through. So if those are the sorts of questions that you would be interested in exploring, um, get in touch with Divyanch on Twitter or reach out to the Day One Project um, and write up your idea. Submit it to their, um, their forum. It's a really uh, fascinating and um, empowering uh, way to spend some of uh, your time. Yeah. And if you're especially interested in emerging tech policy like we, we have an accelerator uh with the on, on uh i believe it's called the racial equity accelerator uh, looking at ai governance uh looking at uh the tech workforce uh, you know how to make sure that the benefits of those technologies are equitably distributed uh you might even want to just sign up for that though i i guess like i don't know probably the deadline for that will pass before you post this we end every episode with a song. Do you have one you'd like to choose? Relevant to this conversation or not? The Immigrant Song. Okay. That's too easy. Relevant to this conversation. You gave it up. Okay. You gave it away. Um, you want to do When the Levy Breaks? It's dark. <laughs> All right. Diviatch, um, thanks so much for being part of Chime Thank you. Uh, now I'm gonna go home. Gonna get a drink, work on my thesis. <laughs> <laughs>